0: Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Um, we are kind of moving right along through the Ten Commandments, uh, just like we're kind of moving through 2021 already. It's hard to believe that two months are already in the books Uh, for 2021. Does anybody feel like the year is going faster than 2020 did, at least? 2020 felt like a decade every week, you know, it's like every month that hit, it's like which scroll of the apocalypse are we opening today, Uh, you know, but 2021 has been a little bit, a little bit better, but uh, February kind of passed by, and uh, we had some pretty, you know, we had some pretty big things that happened in February, February is kind of an important month, right? Uh, Of course, it's Black History Month, all month long, Um, it's also where we have Valentine's Day, Groundhog Day. Uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of cool stuff that goes on um, in the month of February. Uh, but did you know Did you know that there are also every single day in February was a day to celebrate? Every single day has a national day of celebration. Here's some of the days that you may have missed. And guys, let me just say this. If you missed Valentine's Day, I don't know why you're still alive, to be honest with you. But, but anyway, if you missed some of these, there's probably a little bit lesser known. For instance, did you know that February 2nd was National Tater Tot Day? Oh. I would have liked to have celebrated that. You know what I mean? Been over at Sonic and got me some loaded tater tots or something like that. For some reason, uh, that's the same day as Groundhog Day, but so for some reason, Groundhog Day just seems to uh, (laughs) overshadow it. (laughs) Corny pun number one. All right, if you're tracking with us at home, if you're scoring at home. February 7th was National Periodic Table Day. Go nerds. Um, uh, February, or yay science. February 8th was National Clean Out Your Computer Day. Missed that one because it was so full that my calendar didn't remind me. February 13th was National Cheddar Day. I hate to have missed National Cheddar Day. February 17th was National Cabbage Day. Not near as exciting, but, you know, for our vegan friends, they have to have a day too. February 20th was National Love Your Pet Day, which I will just say this. Every day at Holmes Manor is Love Your Pet Day. So, February 20th, it doesn't matter what day that is. February, 13th was Nash, or February 23rd was National Tile Day. Yay, tiles. They get a day. February twenty fifth, probably the best day ever. It is National Chili Day and National Clam Chowder Day, all at the same time. Can I get a witness? Can we go back in time on that? Right. One holiday I was happy to miss though was February fifth. That's National Shower with a Friend Day. If you celebrated, keep it to yourself. (laughs) <laughs> and your friend all right anyway all right that was the the bad time so if you're looking to still get in on the february fun today today is a great day as well today is national chocolate souffle day it is national floral design day national tooth fairy day which noelle lost a tooth yesterday so she almost got to celebrate that today is also national rare disease day and also national public sleeping day So if you've ever had the desire to fall asleep in public, today would be the day. Of course you're in church, so (laughs) it's where most people do it anyway, so go right at it. You can't far be it for me to keep you from celebrating those days, right? But for me, today is not really a celebratory day because today is the day that as we began this series, I was dreading more than any other day. I've been dreading this message more than any other message. Because this is the message that as I looked at it, I knew that I would have to stand in a room full of my brothers and sisters that is also filled with my my wife my daughter, my mother, and my mother-in-law, and talk about sex. This is not the day that I was wanting to, this is not the day that I've been feeling like, like preaching. This is, also the, this is also the commandment that I was not looking forward to preaching because of all the other commandments, this is probably the one that is the most culturally rejected, the most culturally questioned, the most culturally maligned, but it is also, because of that, I believe it is the most culturally relevant today. And it's not, and here's, hear me well, Today when I'm preaching, we're not just preaching about all those people out there. We're talking about in here too. We're talking about within the body of Christ. This is not just something that our society rejects. Our church is rejecting it at an alarming rate as well. Our Christian churches are rejecting it at an alarming rate as well. So today we're looking at the the seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse number 14. Let's read this out loud together. Four words, do not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak this morning. I pray that you would be the preacher. I pray, Father, that I would just be the messenger and that I would get out of the way of what you want to do. And Father, we know that when you move, you move in power, you move in truth. So I pray that you would convict us, uh, not just in our heads, but convict us in our hearts where we can align with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are not just someone who comes to save us, but you are the fulfillment of the law as well. You make all things new. I pray this morning that you would do a work within our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And God's church said, amen. amen. Seventh Commandment obviously delves into the marriage relationship. When we see the word adultery, we realize that adultery is specifically tied to the marriage relationship. It is when we engage in a sexual relationship with someone other than who we are married to. So adultery is something that God obviously, based upon the Ten Commandments, says this is not morally acceptable as my standard. Now that goes, more, that goes further than God just saying, hey, I care about your sex life. It goes further into that, and we're going to see that this morning. Last week I said that uh, in the message on murder, Last week I said that I believe that we live in a culture of death. We're surrounded and we become desensitized on every level to death. We see acts of violence. We see acts of murder. We see acts of aggression on the news. We see them portrayed in entertainment. We just seem to not be able to, we have them in our video games and in our music. We can't seem to get enough death. But I think if there's one other culture that rivals the culture of death, and I think maybe even supersedes it, is the culture of sex that we live in as well. We live in a culture that is permeated on basically every level and in every arena. It is permeated by the subject and by the notion of sex. Psychiatrists have told us and sociologists have told us that sex runs the world today, it seems like. And that has been going on for a lot longer than we would think. Basically, ever since the beginning of time, sex has run us to a, on, a, on a certain scale, A great portion of our economy, and I mean a great portion of our economy is fueled by sex as well. Sex is big businesses, and in most cases it's not big business in a good way. See, it serves as a foundational element of the healthcare industry revenue. Production of men's health drugs like Viagra and Cialis rakes in an estimated $3 billion every single year. $3 billion generated from that one aspect of the healthcare industry. Now we turn to some of the more negative facts. It's estimated that the porn industry takes in more than $15 billion every single year, and that does not even include the new freelance markets or sites that have sprung up because of the propagation of the internet and social media like OnlyFans and Instagram when they can monetize Twitter pages and all of those things, webcam avenues for social media accounts. Our culture is sex-driven, it's sex-crazed, and it is sex-obsessed. But it's also led to a culture that is sexually dangerous. The alarming numbers at which sexual abuse and exploitation is taking place in our nation alone, much less the world, is staggering. Hear this, and hear this well. It is estimated that 4.8 million victims of human sex trafficking exist today worldwide. 4.8 million people are enslaved through human sex trafficking. 30% of that 4.8 million are estimated to be children under the age of 18. And while that number is a global statistic, don't think that that's just an out-there problem that exists outside the good old U.S. of A. Because in the U.S., porn production, we are the highest producers of pornography. We are the highest producers of illegal child pornography. And we are one of the highest, we are one of the highest consumers of sex trafficking victims. 199,000 incidents of, checks, of children's sexual exploitation in the U.S. this past year. Overall, there were 17,880 human trafficking prosecutions in the U.S. in 2017. Here's a statement that actually, should actually, actually wreck the Church of Jesus Christ. Human trafficking produces $9.5 billion annually in the United States alone. That's not million, that's not thousand, $9.5 billion annually, human sex trafficking. Here's some perspective. Let me put that in perspective. Remember last week I said numbers don't usually register with us very much, but individuals do. If every human on the planet came to you today, every human being on the planet today came and gave you a dollar bill, you would still be $2.5 billion short to make up of the revenue that our nation alone spent on sex trafficking. We live in a very sexually dangerous world today. Sex is driving us and it is not driving us in a healthy way. It is not driving us in a good way because we have missed the mark as far as God is concerned with his design of sex. And here's the thing, like I said before, the church cannot claim the moral high ground. If you've paid much attention to what is going on within, the, within church life in, in multiple denominations across our country today, most people have heard of the Catholic sex scandal that took place a few years ago. I was in Boston just a couple of years ago and I happened to be working at a church and working with the church, their first church in Charlestown that's existed since 1600. Just the street over was an old Catholic cathedral, beautiful cathedral that had been turned into a dollar tree. It was now a dollar tree. And the reason was that was the church where all of the, where all of the scandal began. The church no longer exists. They've shuttered the doors and they've turned it into a dollar tree today. Since the Catholic sexual church scandal, numerous investigative reports into other denominations, including Baptists, both independent Fundamental Baptist and Southern Baptist churches, have revealed years of systemic ignoring and covering up of sexual abuse within its clergy, within its members, stifling children who come forward, and shuffling perpetrators and people who and, and people who engaged in predatory activity, just moving them on to another church when something else happened. We cannot change. We cannot claim the moral high ground. Added to that, that just this in this last week, a report from an investigation that was released, outlining the predatory conduct of the late Ravi Zacharias, famous Christian apologist, revealed that he was living a double life and abused several women from his country of India. So we can't claim the moral high ground. We can't look at this and say, man, if the world would just get their act together as far as sex is concerned, we could see some stuff clean up. If it's going to start, if it's going to reach out there, it has to start in here. It has to start in here. And let me go one step further. It has to go, it has to start in here and then it has to reach in here. To every individual within our pews, within our walls, within our church roles. The question is, how did we get here? A lot of people would like to look back and say, well, it was the 60s. It was a sexual revolution of free love and, and all of that stuff. It was when we took God out of, or when we took prayer out of schools and we stopped preaching at, or stopped teaching abstinence in sexual reproductive classes. You can say all of those things happened, but we got to that place when we turned our backs on commandment number seven. You said, but it's just talking about adultery. I want to show you this more by the command, do not commit adultery covers all aspects of sexual purity, and it defines what, sexual, what the ideal sexual relationship is supposed to be within the bonds of marriage according to God, the one who designed sex. Of all the other commandments that we're going to address in this series, this one is going to be the most relevant, but it's also probably going to be the one that's most questioned and probably the one that's most violently received because it really gets to the core of where we're sitting at today in our world. See, there's, no more, there's a whole lot more to this commandment that meets the eye. When it says, do not commit adultery, if you've been here for the majority of this series, you know that when we see the commandment, we know that's the tip of the iceberg. And then like 90% of the the iceberg exists beneath the surface. And this is going to be no different. Matter of fact, that 90% of this iceberg is like huge. So I hope you buckle up and I hope you listen fast because we got a lot to cover and we don't have a whole lot of time to cover it. You can probably tell by the way that I opened the sermon this morning that this one goes deeper than just not finding yourself on an episode of Cheater's or somebody saying, hey, my husband or my wife is stepping out on me. This goes way further than just showing up in a country song where Taylor, Smith is, uh, Taylor Swift is mad at you. Adultery goes further, goes way further than we can imagine. So this is a widely spread, widely celebrated message that we should be able to just love who we want. The heart wants what the heart wants, but this perpetuates a lot of myths that we're going to look at. And the first one, the first thing, we kind of open with a negative connotation, so let's look at a couple of things this morning from a positive light. The first thing we have to understand is that all of God's laws, all the laws that God's given, including this one, are they're good for us. God gives his laws, not just so he can lord his authority. He's a sovereign God. He doesn't need us to submit to know he's in control. He gives us his laws for our benefit and for our good. He gives us his laws because as sovereign, omnipotent God, omniscient God, he can see down the road at what our actions today are going to produce tomorrow. And that's why he says, don't do this. That's why he says, watch out for this. That's why he says, shun this. And every time he says that, what we normally do is look at what we feel like we're missing out on, when what we should really do is look at what he's affirming. And this commandment specifically, he's not just talking about what we can't do, he's talking about how we can enjoy one of the greatest gifts that he has given to the marriage relationship. You see, human nature is for us to assume that any rules are bad, right? How many of you just really liked rules? You love them, right? I'm one of those guys that when I started coloring, I I like freaked out if I did not color inside the lines. Like I needed counseling if my crayon went outside the lines just a little bit. So you would say that I'm probably a rule follower. I'm not really a rule follower. I'm a rule questioner. I probably don't have the guts to go break a whole lot of rules that are out there. My mom is shaking her head at me right now. But I would like to remind you that you also had another son too. Alright? So, like I said, this is going to be an awkward message. Very, very awkward. Alright? We all question our rules because it's our human nature. We hear a rule, we, we see a restraint, we see a constriction, and we think, why in the world does that exist? If we don't break it, we definitely want to question it because we are all natural-born rebels. We're all born to question that. And here's the thing. There's... The general assumption, especially in America, this is why rules kind of just really get at us, especially in America, and I'm not dogging America because I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have, but in America, we love our freedom, don't we, right? We love Uncle Sam and apple pie and baseball and all those things and freedom, right? And there's nothing wrong with freedom. There's nothing wrong with freedom. It's a good thing. It's a core value in our society that freedom is something that is essential to life, liberty, and the pursuit of our happiness. There is nothing wrong with that. I'm not preaching against that. But here's what I'm saying. The way we view freedom, the way we view exercising our freedom has gone off the rails. Freedom is not necessarily an entitled right that we have to do whatever we want. Freedom is a responsibility to us to exercise that freedom not only for ourselves but for the benefit of other people. See, what we think today in our society, we believe that true freedom comes from throwing off any external constraints so that I'm free to follow any dictate that my heart desires. That's the definition of freedom in our modern culture today. Freedom is, I got nothing holding me back. I got nothing holding me back, and that's what we see. This is the way our government works. We have a law. If the populace doesn't like the law, guess what they do? They, they, they elect officials to go in and change the law to something that their heart desires more. When we're governed by our heart, freedom becomes kind of poisoned. Because this is a widely spread, widely celebrated message today to just follow my heart. But it perpetuates two very dangerous myths that the Bible just flat out, agree, flat out disagrees with and puts us as the church in a place where we've got to choose a side. And I don't know about you, but choosing the side of God is always going to be the safest thing to do. So here's two myths that this idea about freedom Gives us. Number one is that we are at our freest and we are living our best lives when we operate independent of any rules and restrictions. If any rules and restrictions are gone, if they're taken away, then my life is free to flourish. My life is free. I'm free to be me. I'm free to do whatever I want to. And this is a far cry from biblical truth. It sounds good, sounds great in a stump speech, looks good on a bumper sticker, but it doesn't work according to the framework of Scripture. See, because the truth is we're not most alive when we have no constraints. We're most, de- we're most alive when we thrive and operate according to how we're designed. According to how we're designed. Not according to how I feel like I just want not to go. Not, freedom is not I get to wake up today and decide I want to do this, I want to be this, I want to go here, I want to do this. Freedom is I'm going to live and thrive in the way I've been designed. Look, if I woke up and said, hey... Today, I'm going to exercise my freedom, and I'm going to be a professional ballet dancer. By the way, I can't dance, and I'm not even going to show you how I can. That's not going to work, because I'm not designed to be a ballet dancer. I can't even bend over to tie my shoes. I'm not going to plie. We're not designed that way. Here's the best example I've ever heard about this. A fish swimming in the water decides one day, I want to be free of the constraints of the ocean. So he jumps out of the water and up onto the beach. How long does that freedom, how long does he enjoy that freedom? Not very long because he's designed to live in that water. If you decide one day, I'm going to be an advocate for all the fish. I don't think it's fair that they only get to live in the ocean. So I'm going to take this fish and I'm going to take it out and I'm going to take and put him in my backyard and let him roam free. You've just killed that fish. You haven't, you haven't emancipated that fish. You have killed that fish because you've taken him from the place where he's designed to thrive and you've put him in a place where he cannot do it and he's not equipped. So you get my drift? We are designed to thrive within God's standard for us. We're designed to, we're designed to thrive within the way God has planned for us and equipped us and gifted us. When we step outside of that, dangerous things Begin to happen, and some of you are sitting there right now, and you're saying, "You know what? You're a Disney fan. You're like, you know what? Talk to Ariel the Mermaid about how that illustration goes over." Yeah, I realize Ariel came out came out okay. All right, that's fine. You got that. All right, but it's a myth to say that we're the freest when people operate independent of rules and constraints. Because get this, and you may want to write this down or whatever you need to do. Real freedom isn't found in living dictated by my desire, but rather by my design. Real freedom is found not in living dictated by my desire. It's found in living dictated by my design. The other myth that we have is that our desires are the best path to knowing what is best for us. How many of you ever heard that old line? Just follow your heart. The heart wants what the heart wants. I want to engage you in my truth. There's different forms and versions of truth. This is popular today. This is the way many people think. I gotta follow my heart, I gotta listen to my heart. All of a sudden, that Disney song from Mulan, you know, be true to your heart is playing in the back of my heart. I'm picking on Disney today, aren't I, for some reason? I guess I am. But seriously, it's the continuous drumbeat message from the moment from the moment that we our heart starts beating, we are told, you're only gonna be happy if you get to do whatever your heart desires. But what happens if I desire something that's outside my desire? All I'm doing is setting myself up for a life of frustration, of difficulty, of sadness, and definitely a life of never understanding God as he intended to be understood through how he created me. You see, because our hearts are deceitful. The Bible tells us that we can't trust our hearts. I can't be true to my heart because my heart is not true to me. My heart is evil. It is desperately wicked. And it says, who can know it? I can't be true to my heart because I can never figure my heart out. So the only way I can properly handle my heart is to take my heart as fast as I can and give it to Jesus as best I can because he's the only one who knows how to handle it because he's the designer. Our hearts are deceitful and no one can know it. You see our hearts desire a lot of things that we don't eat, that are bad for us that we don't My heart, when I go out to eat at Texas Roadhouse, my heart desires a 20-ounce ribeye covered in blue cheese and clarified garlic butter and a loaded baked potato with extra sour cream on the side. But my cardiologist said your heart should desire a side salad with a spritz of lemon and extra alfalfa sprouts. I'm not hearing the same thing you're hearing in that stethoscope there, Doc. I'm just not hearing that. Listen, I can't even trust my heart to want what's physically best for me, how can I trust my heart to want what's spiritually best for me or emotionally best for me? My heart is always going to lead me down the wrong path. So let me ask you this question this morning and ask yourself this as you're sitting there. This is a practical application. When was the last time in your life that you followed your heart and it got you into trouble? You may not even know that it's got you in trouble yet, but it eventually will. And why don't we go back, let's go back to Disney again. Man, I'm picking on them today. Let's go back and ask Ariel how following her heart worked for her. Oh yeah, I followed my heart. It led me straight. It led me straight to the sea witch, and she stole my voice, and she almost took my dad's throne, and she almost killed my boyfriend that I wanted. Yeah, I got to walk around for a little while. But man, my life didn't turn out so good. And if you're sitting there saying, oh, yes, it did. It ended happily ever after. The sea witch was destroyed. She married Eric and she became, and then they had, Eric, they had uh, Little Mermaid 1 and 2 and 3 and all that stuff. Yeah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and I want you to Google the real ending of The Little Mermaid. I'm not going to ruin it for you here, but look it up in Hans Christian. It doesn't end the way Disney says. Because when we follow our heart, Our heart will always, most always lead it wrong. If our heart is different from where God is directing us, it is always going to lead us in the wrong direction. So if laws, God's laws are good and they are a foundation for our freedom, not our bonds of captivity, when it comes down to it, the only thing that we can truly trust in this world are God's laws. And what God says about us, and what God says he's designed for us, and what God says he wants of us. So the question is what's included in this commandment. This is the second part of the message. See, our human nature makes us want to question this commandment because human nature is bent against rules, remember? So we look at this and says, okay, it says don't commit adultery. So what does that actually mean? And what we're really saying, we're not saying I want to understand the depth. We're saying is I want to find the loophole. That's what I did as a teenager. Okay, the Bible says don't have sex before marriage. So how far can I go? Now, this is where I get really uncomfortable talking in front of my mother and my mother-in-law and everybody else. My wife stayed home today, by the way. That you can't guess why. No, she's, she's at home with, our, with, with Noel who's sick. But don't tell me you didn't do that too. We always look at God's rules and what we say is, all right, here's the cliff. And we say, how close can I get to the edge before I fall off? Don't we? How close can I get to the edge before I fall off? Instead of saying, there's the cliff. God, thank you. Thank you that you've warned me that the cliff is ahead. I'm going to sit here with you. No, we say, oh, there's the cliff. I wonder what's at the bottom of that cliff. I wonder why God put that. Oh, it doesn't look so bad down there. I'll bet I could make it down to the bottom. That's what we do. That's our desire. That's why we say, okay, so what's covered by this commandment? What is it actually saying? So it's really only talking about sexual fidelity within marriage, right? Well, here's what happened. God used the sexual relationship within marriage to define what is good and what is right. Anything outside of that is defined as outside of God's plan and as sin. For instance, how many of you have a fireplace at home? You, a few of you do, okay. We got a gas fireplace, so it's really easy to start a fire flip a switch. But how you have a wood-burning fireplace? Like you're still in the pioneer days, okay. When you want to start a fire to warm the house, where do you start the fire? Two people know what's going on, all right? We start a fire in the fireplace, right? But if you want to burn down the house, where do you start the fire? Anywhere outside the fireplace you want to. It doesn't matter. You get what I'm saying? Marriage is the fireplace. Marriage is the fireplace that God gave us to enjoy the sexual relationship to where it is, it is beneficial, it is good, it is pure, and it is, uh, it is the best and most enjoyed, Anywhere outside of that is going to lead to destruction in some way, some form. It's going to lead to hardship. It's going to lead to a problem. So this is how God designed it. So when God says do not commit adultery, what he is saying is have great sex only within the bonds of marriage. Anything outside of that may be okay for a while, may seem good. All sin is pleasurable for a season, but after a while there is going to be problems that we see from it. We're seeing cultural problems. Some people see individual problems, emotional problems. They come from from that all the time. But the place that many people say is just, how far can I go before I cross the line? So here's what we have to understand. Jesus said, if you have even looked with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. This is how serious it is to God. See, the first chapters of Genesis, give print for God's design and for both marriage and for sex. You say, well, how do you know that marriage is the fireplace that God put that in? If you go all the way back to Genesis, you see God create man and woman, and then he marries Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And the next thing that he says when he gives them the job description of marriage is that they are to be together forever as as one flesh. And he says, I give you, I give you this gift. It was a wedding gift of the sexual relationship for intimacy, for enjoyment, and for procreation. So what we have to, deter, what we have to uh, deduct from that is that sex is only healthy and only intended by God, the one who designed it and gave it, within that relationship of marriage. So by that definition, God gave us his standard. Sin, that word sin means to miss the mark. It was an archery term from back in the medieval days. If someone missed the bullseye, someone would throw their hand up and say sin, you missed the mark. To sin is to miss God's mark and his standard and his plan for our lives. So anything outside that fireplace falls under the scope of sexual sin. In the New Testament, they used the word porneia. p o r n e i a, That was basically kind of like this junk drawer word that covered all other forms of sexual sin. Sexual infidelity. It covered all of it. It covered sex outside of marriage. It covered same sex. It covered, it covered lust. It covered all of those things. It was this junk drawer that took it. So what it's telling us is anything outside that marriage, sexual relationship falls into that category of porneia. So many people ask, how far is too far? If you've gone into the sexual realm, it's pornea. But what about if I really love my partner? Are you married? If not, it's pornea. I don't say that to judge. say that to say this is what God's word says. What about in our culture? What about homosexuality or same-sex relationships? If it falls outside of God's definition of marriage, one man, Adam, one woman, Eve, married and united before God for life, it is not proper sexual relationship. And that's not, you don't stand, you don't stand before me as your judge. It's God. And again, remember, are not for my judgment and for my restriction, it's for my good. Remember, we just, we just talked about that a minute ago. So since sex was given to humanity within the framework of marriage, it is only healthy within the framework of marriage. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that, when, that porneia even included our lust. So he said even thoughts of sex outside of marriage is considered to be porneia. So fantasizing about it with someone to whom you're not married is porneia. Now living in a sex-saturated sex culture as we do today, that statement by Jesus Christ, man, that opens up a whole new realm Of guilt, doesn't it? Of accountability. This also answers some of the boundary testing questions that we would ask as well. But what if I don't go all the way? Eventually, if you're asking, pretty much if you're asking that question, you've gone too far because you've gone into that realm of lust and pornea already. But what if I'm engaged? Is engaged the same as married? No. You see, what's covered in this commandment is what we look at, oftentimes we look at that and we, 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 we groan and we moan about what's restricted. But the key to this is to look at what's affirmed. Is that God designed sex to be enjoyed. God designed sex to be a wonderful gift within marriage. Which marriage is a gift to the people, not only who engage in marriage, but it's a gift to the world who sees godly marriage taking place. I'm going to say that again, and we're going to come back to that again here in just a second. So let's move on to the next obvious question that we're taken to outside of why, uh, what does it cover. Why does God care so much? Why is sex so bad? I heard a guy one time on a secular radio show, and he said one day, blasphemously said one day, why does God care so much about my private parts and what I do with them? And I don't mean to say that to be crass or to be, I'm just quoting what he said. He went on to imply later on that God is a pervert for caring so much about our sex lives. Now, most of us are not going to be that irreverent when we think about that, but we will question it just as much. Why is God so restrictive when it comes to this? Because we've evolved in our culture to understand that, you know, if as long as it's two consenting adults, what does it matter, right? What's between two adults is between two adults. That's the problem. Sex is never just between two adults. Sex is a gift of God. Therefore, God's also got a part in that. Say, man, that makes me feel kind of cringy. That's the way God designed this to be. And I think we've moved so far away from God's design that we think the beautiful design that God made is cringy. For a lot of people, it makes them look at that and doubt God's goodness. A lot of people look and say, I get why I shouldn't murder. I get why I shouldn't steal. But why does God care so much about who I sleep with? What's wrong and immoral with two consenting adults deciding to come together in this way? And many people say God's not good because he's wanting to withhold my pleasure, and my enjoyment of this life that I live. So when I was a youth pastor, a student argued with me that God doesn't require animals to be married before they have sex, so why should he require humans to do so? Well, to that, the answer is obvious, and here's why sex outside of marriage for humans is considered to be bad. is because, first of all, it goes against why God created us. God created human sexuality as sacred. The reason human sexuality is sacred and different from all other sexual, uh, sexual activity within, within creation is because we're different from all other creation. We're created with the image of God. You see, for animals, sexual reproduction is about one dimension. It's physical, biological transaction. But for a human being who bear the image of God, we are mind, body, and soul. That relationship transcends physical and goes into other aspects as well goes into other aspects of will. You and I are more than one-dimensional beings. We're created in the image of God. And so sex is not just merely a biological transaction. It transcends into the, in all dimensions of our existence. See, I realize that in the sexual revolution, in the free love movement, today's hookup with friends, friends with benefits, casual sex culture, that this message hits is completely countercultural. It's uninvolved or it's unevolved, and it's archaic. But sex is never casual. Sex is never just merely a benefit. It's not just a physical transaction between two living creatures. There's always more attached to it because God made marriage and human sexuality a living picture of his relationship with us. This is something that we do not hear today on any level outside of the word of God. That God designed marriage and human sexuality as to be a living picture of his relationship with us. Paul said this in his writings that we are created in his image and that the marriage relationship is more than just two people committing to do life together. It's more than just two people who wrongfully assume, well, we've dated for a while, we did the next step, we lived together for a while, which by the way, falls under pornea as well. We did all this stuff for a while, and so now the next step is just to get married. Let's just go ahead and do that and let's, let's, let's get on with our lives. Marriage is one of those real life experiential examples of what God and how God relates to us as his creation. This is why in the places in scripture where God most clearly talks about his relationship with us, he uses the word known. And in both the Old Testament uh, Hebrew and in the New Testament Greek, it says that word there is the same word that's used for marital intimacy. God knows us as a husband knows his wife, as a spouse knows his spouse. Interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation, you see that the church, we the redeemed, are called the bride of Christ. In Isaiah, it says that God rejoices over us, his children as a groom rejoices over his wife. God intended for the marriage relationship and even for the sexual side of that relationship to be a living picture of God and how he relates to us as well. See, there's three things, there's three ways that that mirrors that. And I know that we're running, but I'm going to go, I'm going to speed up a little bit here. But there's three things that are pictured within the marriage relationship that God does with us in our relationship. First, in marriage, there is a complete union of persons or of people. There's a total oneness. It's every marriage that I've ever done, every marriage that I've ever attended, this phrase always pops up, and the two shall become one. Why? Because we recognize marriage within the biblical context as in front of God, two people are becoming one. Two families are being fused together as one. Two people are coming together to create one They're coming together and they stand before the altar and before God and before their family. They commit to one another to be mind, body, and emotionally attached until death do they part. They come together in their finances. They come together in their family. They come together in where they live. They come together in everything. Their credit card debt, it comes together. What's his is hers and what's hers is his. Everything is joined together and the physical act of sexual intimacy is a physical joining together and fusing of that person before God as well. The second thing that we have within the marriage relationship is there is exclusivity. In the marriage relationship, you stand and you say, I choose you forsaking all others. I don't just tell Stacey, babe, at our wedding day, I didn't just tell Stacey, babe, you are the number one on all the other girls on my list. No. Number one, there wasn't a lot of girls willing to be on that list. But number two, I didn't want a list. I wanted her. Her wanted her. There's exclusivity in that. Psychologists will tell us that even in our openly sexual culture today, the overwhelming majority of sexual relationships will only be sustained long-term if they finally arrive at exclusivity. I realize there's open relationships and I'm just dating and there's no attachments. We haven't gone exclusive yet, but they'll only continue if they eventually arrive at exclusivity because it's human nature to look at that aspect of relationship and say, I am going to be loyal to one and to one only. Does anyone really want to hear from somebody the rest of the life that they've, just been, that they've just been intimate and vulnerable with? Maybe of all the people that I'm currently sleeping with, I like you the best. That's not true love. That's not a real relationship. And third, in the marriage, there's unconditional acceptance. See, human beings are created with this innate desire to be both known and to be loved. And in today's love scene, I guess you could say, there's one or the other. And if you only chase after one and never get the other, it's always going to be out of balance. See, if I chase after only being loved, it's going to cause me to do anything it takes to get that love from somebody else. I'll sacrifice everything about me in order to sustain that love. And if all I care about is being known, then I don't care a rip about love. This is me, full fledged, and if you don't like it, I'll go find somebody else. But you see, in the marriage relationship, we are both known and we are loved. We are loved and we are accepted. Even though we are fully known, we are still accepted. That's why we say, till death do us part. It mimics what Jesus says. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. This is the three things that we see within the marriage relationship that God does within us as well. You it offers this perfect balance. Marriage puts you in a scenario where you'll be known and no matter how much you try to hide it or dress it up, you're gonna be fully known. And for marriage to last, love is necessary to endure the unlovable things that we come to know about our partner. God unites himself to us. That's the union of two people. Exclusivity is he's faithful to us and he calls us to have no other gods but him and he unconditionally accepts us. He sees us in our sin for all that we are and in all of our inglorious nakedness and shame that has been fully exposed, he says, I want you. And he crossed the divide of everything that was separating us and he gave his son as the dowry, as the down payment for us to be his bride, for us to be Jesus's bride. So many people resist this commandment because they're being afraid of missing out on something. But I wonder so much that all the stuff that we think we're missing out on we're trading in on what God really wanted us to see. The innocent intimacy within the marriage bond that God intended. That's when it is and that's what God is saying that is when it is most beautiful. So this is why sex outside of marriage is considered to be bad. And lastly as we close this morning and this is honestly going to be very quick. But our sexual fidelity is measured in our hearts. Our sexual fidelity is measured in our hearts. See, adultery isn't just measured by who you're sleeping with or by who you're not sleeping with. The Old Testament law was given to foreshadow our need for Jesus. And here's what Jesus said later on in Matthew chapter 5. He said in verse number 27, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. See, adultery is measured by more than who you're sleeping with. It's also measured by who you're thinking about sleeping with. It hits just as hard when Jesus said it as it does right now. Telling someone to never have a lustful thought is like telling a fish not to breathe water, right? Right? Because it's so much ingrained in us. It's a part of who we are. And a lot of we look at it and say, God, you, you're the one who created these desires. Why are you being so restrictive with them? Why are you so harsh with them? This verse helps us to understand a couple of things. Is that God is not messing around when it comes to sexual fidelity? He's not messing around. And then also that we all stand condemned under the standard. There's not one of us who can say, man, I've never lusted in my heart. Not one of us. There's a lot of people who can say, I never cheated on my wife, I saved myself from marriage. There's, there's people who can say that. But there's no one who can say, I never lusted. I've never done that. So in other words, we all stand condemned here. So what's our hope? Our hope is to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And our hope is to find our fulfillment in him. Because as we are fulfilled in him, we don't have to, the fulfillment of, 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 of the world, we become more fulfilled by obeying him and doing things the way he said to do. The reason he cares so much about this is because sex, more than almost anything else in our culture, has a way of becoming our God really, really fast. Because let's say that it's a good thing. God gave it to us as a good thing. But too much of a bad thing, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. And having a good thing when you're in a place you're not supposed to have it can also be a bad thing. Sex is a way of taking over our lives and becoming a God to us, and an idol is defined as anything that we come to a place where we need the most, that I can't be happy without, obey the most, and whatever commands my obedience. And for most people today, and people also within the church, this is the problem. When sex calls, you go running. When sex calls, we go running. I'm so desperate to have a relationship, I need it, and this guy wants to sleep with me, and this girl wants to sleep with me, and I don't think I'm going to be able to keep them unless I do. When sex calls, we go running. This is why, guys, you can't turn off. The internet porn because when it calls it goes running it's become a god sex can quickly become our god and sexual desire left unchecked gradually consumes our heart and commands our obedience to the point that it becomes more of a god to you than god is and let me say this sex is a terrible god it is an evil master that will take you chew you up spit you out and leave you raw It'll take something that God intended to be good and pure and a picture of his holiness to us and turn it into something else. And that's exactly what Satan the deceiver wants to do. He wants to take what God makes beautiful and make it ugly and make it hurtful and painful. If we do not obey the God of sex, we will obey sex as our God. I guess that's the, the, the message in a nutshell. If we do not obey the God of sex, we will eventually serve sex as our God. And as we close, this is, the, this is the beautiful picture that we have to understand. You may be sitting here thinking, okay, man, a lot of condemnation laying on me today. And understand this. I realize that, that in our culture, I realize that it is a very rare thing for two people to stand at a wedding altar one day having saved themselves from marriage. It's a rare thing in our culture that it's just looked at to be kind of weird. But it is not wrong. It is God's design. And understand that if that wasn't you on your way today, or if you've fallen into sexual sin and temptation, understand that God's grace falls over that just as much as it does over everything else. Amen. If you're struggling with same-sex desire, God's grace falls over that just as much as it does everything else. Everything else. Sin is sin in God's eyes. And thankfully, every sin in God's eyes is forgivable. I want to close with this, this story. It's an Old Testament story that's not told a whole lot from the book of Hosea. A lot of people know that Hosea is a book in the Bible, but they don't know the story of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament who God said, I'm going to let you get married, and you're going to marry this girl named Gomer. Isn't that a lovely name? Gomer. Man, I, I'm just imagining Gomer and what her picture must look like, right? But apparently Gomer was pretty desirable because Gomer was the city prostitute. So here you have God's man, God's prophet, marrying a prostitute. That's unheard of. Never had happened before then. And many people were wondering, what is wrong with Hosea? Can we really listen to him? What is God trying to say through all of this? Anytime Hosea walked into something when he had his new bride on his arm, he was wondering, okay, what guys in the room have you been with? And let's just be plain and simple what what it looked like. But Hosea married Gomer and he loved Gomer unconditionally. He had three kids with Gomer. Well, two that he knew was his, the last kid wasn't his because he gave these kids some really cool names, man. They were terrible. His daughter's name, his daughter's name meant no mercy. The son that wasn't his, that was somebody else's kid, they never found out who it was. They called him Lo Loamai, which basically meant he's not mine. That's what his name meant. So everywhere Hosea went, everywhere he preached, everywhere he went, everybody knew what his home life was like. Gomer had multiple affairs on Hosea, but every time Hosea would take her back. And again, she would stray. Finally, she strayed for the last time and she left, took her bags, packed up, and she left Hosea and she left her kids. And she went to live with another man who eventually put her into sex slavery. Hosea goes down and he seeks her out in the city and he finds her in the slave market up on the block and is about to be sold into slavery. And he walks through all of the bidders, every one of the bidders with their paddles up and he says, I don't care what you're willing to pay, I'll pay more because she's mine. Guys, I don't know who in here would relate and would do that. Time and time and time and time again, someone saying, I want better, I want more, I want something else and just leave me. So here's Hosea, a single dad, a minister, going and he finds his wife and he buys her back and he takes her home. And the beautiful picture that we see is that it melts Omer's heart and we don't see any evidence of her straying ever again. And their marriage is restored. Now, in the Old Testament, it's a picture of the way Israel was, was so many times adulterous to God, but it's a picture for us in the New Testament of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How we left God and we left Jesus in our sins. And we went out chasing after other gods. And you may, that may be a picture of your life. You may say, hey, I, I'm, I belong to Jesus, I'm saved, but man, I continually just find myself over here. And every single time he chases me down, he takes me back and he holds me up as his child, as his own, as his bride, because God is unconditional in his love. He's unconditional in his forgiveness. Yes, he is holy and just in his law, but his mercy draws us back every time we break it. That's why I can preach, do not commit adultery in a, in a culture where just about everyone is adulterous to some extent. Every one of us fall guilty of that and proclaim hope that Jesus Christ loves us. We are all Gomer, but thankfully we have a Hosea. Get what Hosea's name meant, salvation. So as we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, I don't know who this message really hits home with hard, but as I was preparing this message, I go into it thinking, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm faithful. I love my wife. I pray every day, God, give me eyes only for my wife. But, I, but none of us can say, none of us can say that we stand before this commandment not condemned in some way, shape, or form. The only hope is we have. It, gomers as we are, jesus takes us back and he restores us and he makes us beautiful heavenly father have your way and will in the rest of this time that we have together in jesus precious name we pray amen thank you for listening today at grace way our strongest desire is to glorify christ by telling everyone about his grace if you have questions or are in need of spiritual help please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.